You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to a new series for this season on the Fleming Foundation. I am your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me, as always, is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. So the new series is called Autodidact, and for those of you familiar with our website, we already have a series uh, in print for this, and this is going to be a companion podcast. And we're starting with Edgar Allan Poe and, and the problem of knowledge. But before we get to that, let's just make sure that people understand the point of the Autodidact series, Dr. Fleming, and what uh, the two sub-series are that we're going to be covering. The, um, I've been doing various little writings I, I call the autodidact. That is, an autodidact is somebody who teaches himself, who does not rely on um, going, to, going to a school or having a tutor. Now, it's my contention, and it has been for or all of my life as a teacher, that everyone really, in the end, is an autodidact, no matter if you're getting a PhD in physics somewhere. You, other, a teacher is somebody who helps you teach yourself. And so what we're trying to do with this is teach people about the traditions of humane learning by recommending books, by talking about them, by giving some kind of context for them without getting really pedantic. So we have uh, a set of reading lists uh, and we have uh, discussions both about specific books, but also about how, how to teach books to people at different ages. And uh, we're reorganizing that part of the website to make it uh, very easy to use and coherent. And so people can come straight within a couple of weeks, people will be able to come to the website, click autodidact and see, well, there's the reading list. So the reading list will become interlinked with the, uh, with the various discussions, both podcasting and with the print discussion. So it should be a very useful thing not just for homeschooling parents or people who are running little schools, but very useful for anybody who's interested in staying mentally alive. Well, that's definitely something that we want to encourage here at the foundation. Maybe. We have, we have two sub-series, one for detective fiction and one for tragedy, and today we're going to be covering the former. Might I say, Dr. Fleming, that you are a reader of mysteries? Yes, that's true. I have to admit it. It's an embarrassing uh, thing to admit. Well, how did you fall into this bad habit? Well, uh, like most people who read a lot, um, I had accidentally stumbled onto some of the more famous uh, works of mystery or detective fiction. I'd read Poe's three short stories, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Uh, I'd read all the Sherlock Holmes things on vacation, uh, several things by Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, who sort of kicked off the, to, the hard-boiled fiction in America. And uh, probably the, one of the books I most enjoyed was uh, Wilkie Collins, um, both The Moonstone and The Woman in White. And he was uh, really uh, a great innovator in this uh, genre. But it's a vast literary genre. I mean, there, there are thousands and thousands of books, and I had only scratched the surface. Um, I tried to read a few others like Agatha Christie, whom I did not like, and to this day I do not like, Earl Stanley Gardner's uh, Perry Mason, and um, 
he doesn't he doesn't know how to write. He's a terrible writer, but he does know how to construct a legal plot. And I found, uh, but mostly I found the books that I tried to read childish and uh, tedious. But it was during a, a difficult period. Uh, one of our children was in the hospital for a long stretch of time, and our lives were disrupted. And you know, I looked around for something I could read sitting in a hospital chair or you know, in a waiting room or, or also something that would take my mind off things. I tried various forms of literature, popular fiction, you know, Western novels. Some of them were pretty good. So I even science fiction novels and, or, and you know, middle-brow novels like a uh, novelist like Louis Auchincloss. But eventually, I kept on returning to the mysteries because they would hold my attention. And I think uh, that's one of their great strengths. Well, do you still feel this way after you've read so much beyond your your youth in the in this genre? Well, uh, about Agatha Christie, um, more or less, I feel the same. Though I found one or two things I like. She creates very improbable characters. They're always impossibly rich or impossibly talented or well connected or even impossibly silly. And uh, she cheats. And I find cheating is the unforgivable sin. She would deny this and her admirers deny it, but she cheats. Okay, you're going to have to clarify for our listeners what you mean by cheating, Dr. Fleming. Okay. Detective fiction is a little bit like science fiction. That is, uh, they have certain rules that you have to follow. And in fact, uh, we'll talk about this later on when we get to the the so-called golden age of uh, a mystery fiction, but there was a group of fiction of uh, detective writers who actually drew up a set of rules. Just as in science fiction, there are there are like Asimov's laws of robotics, which I'm sure you probably memorized those along with the Boy Scout oath when you were a sci-fi reading kid. But um, one one very important rule is the rule of fair play. The reader, the writer is not supposed to deliberately mislead the reader the whole way uh, by suppressing vital clues and vital evidence. And then at the end, the detective pulls the rabbit out of the hat because he's so much smarter than you are. Um, We'll talk about this and many other rules later, but I demand fair play. I don't like it when the writer or the detective is God. I don't like it when they use paranormal means. That's also against the the rules adopted uh, in England. In other words, it can't be, uh, you know, a... uh, mind reader it can't be uh, it can't be a visitor from outer space my standards on this are a good deal higher than a lot of the classic uh, mystery writers like Agatha Christie or S.S. Van Dyne who created the uh, Philo Vance stories that Raymond Chandler was so fond of mocking or John Dixon Carr who is sort of amusing his his detective hero is obviously G.K. Chesterton but they, they don't uh, cheat 100%, but they lead you down the garden path. And one little thing you should have noticed on page eight, you know, that broken flower petal turns out to be the key to the whole thing. Well, I think when you're younger, those sorts of things do tend to, to satisfy a little bit more. And I think perhaps I was a bit more enamored than you were, Dr. Fleming, because 
Um, I, I felt smart. I'm always that person at the end of a, a movie where everyone else in the room has figured out who the murderer is. And I said, yeah. oh, was the butler? I didn't know. I'm, 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 I'm that idiot. So if you want to feel smart, take me along to one of those films. But I, I remember... One of the big ones, I didn't know any... I was the only person I know who halfway through the movie The Sixth Sense... I knew that Bruce Willis was dead. <laughs> uh, people say, didn't that ruin the film? I said, no, because I just bracketed it. And, uh, <laughs> well, and, and, and for anyone who was, uh, who was listening unprotected, they've just found out uh, the conceit of the, the film too. So <laughs> you, could just, you could just skip it. Um, but I, what I, to your point, Dr. Fleming, it's a one-trick pony because the first time you read Murder on the Orient Express – She's so heavily leaving breadcrumbs. Yes. And then you have this wonderful reveal at the end, which is, which is kind of fun. Yeah. But you can't read it again because it's not artful enough to, yeah. to enjoy on a second time around. It's and better than the movie. Yeah, the film, the, the old one. There was a new one, unfortunately, with Kenneth Branagh, which is uh, horrible. But the old one was really, really quite charming. The, the guy who plays Poirot is, is wonderful. Yes, yeah, so these, uh, this is, um, uh, this is uh, one of the problems uh, Christie Christy has. And, uh, you know, she made fun of Josephine Tay, who is among the two or three writers who comes close to writing real literature in, uh, in a form of a detective novel, Georges Simenon being uh, one of the others. But uh, Tay writes about ordinary middle-middle uh, class people. And Agatha Christie said, nobody wants to read about these drab, boring people. And that, that, that remark tells you everything that's wrong with Agatha Christie. She has to write about, you know, the, as they used to say on TV, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And, uh, and, that's what, and, and so it's an attitude thing. You know, it's a it's a lifestyle show, and so all of these uh, country house mysteries, which can be interesting, but if it's always you know the death of you know Lord So and So, um, you eventually one just doesn't care. Well, and I guess the larger question is is when and by whom was the detective story invented? Yeah, well, uh, you've asked a, a question which, uh, say, an ancient Greek would have asked. They, any time they were looked at any human institution, they wanted uh, to seek the aition, the, 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 fir the, the first cause, the beginning point. It's usually some god or, or hero. Uh, it's, uh, and this, the search for first causes, what's really at the bottom of things, is typical of the mentality of the detective. And in fact, that's the, that's the primary thing. It's no accident, for example, that Greeks were very fond of mysteries. Herodotus tells a few mysteries, especially uh, in the Egyptian section of his history. And the first, and I would say greatest mystery story, uh, and it will never be equaled, is uh, the, a play, Sophocles' Oedipus. That is a play in which the detective, I hope I'm not giving this away, the detective finds out the murderer, but he turns out that he is the murderer. And there's a, there's a great scene there where, you know, uh, he, he is, he's ragging, he's bully ragging, as they used to say in America, the, the prophet Tiresias, and pushing him, well, you're in the pay of your, my rivals and enemies, you're a crook, you know, you religious people are all frauds. And Tiresias says, you don't know who you are or from what you come. 
meaning he doesn't know who his parents are. He doesn't know who he is. And the point of the play is that the detective finds not just not just who the murderer is and not just who that he is the murderer, but that he is somebody completely different from what uh, he always imagined. No one will ever, um, I think, come to be able to write something like that. Chesterton tried it a little bit once, but, but really the, the, the best actual story uh, is, uh, is Sophocles' Oedipus. Well, and in that case too, also Dr. Flood, I mean, he acts as the judge, jury, not, we wouldn't say executioner, yeah. but, but the entire legal spectrum is, yeah. is put to him. It's fascinating because when you frame it that way, it you you realize it does fit in very well there but it's so transcendent as a story because in a certain sense there's as you say this mystery but uh we all know we all know what's going on and um and that by the way that's called a there's a uh uh, my favorite uh detective novelist uh richard austin freeman uh invented what's called the reverse mystery where the audience the reader knows at the beginning what the uh, what the mystery is, what the what the solution is, but he has to watch the detective uh, bungle his way toward it. And he wrote several of those. But but again, everybody in the audience was watching the Oedipus, and just about everybody who reads it today knows what the what the what the story is. And it it does not detract from its uh, uh, interest. Modern. Uh, TV mysteries like, uh, like, well, modern, in the past, say, 40 years, things like uh, Murder, She Wrote and um, Columbo, they... Uh, they <laughs> I, I love... So what you're saying is... <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that guy. One, one more thing. What, the, um, they, they show you the, the murder in the beginning, but that's because they, they consciously figured out that Americans are too dumb and impatient actually sit through a mystery where they don't have the answer from the beginning but that's not why austin freeman created uh, the reverse murder so the, the 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 reverse mystery story so the uh, the other thing just before leaving the oedipus one you know aristotle says that there are two primary things that have to happen in a plot for a greek tragedy one of them is peripeteia. You have to go from being having uh, happy with a great good fortune into misery or the reverse. And the other is anagnorisis, a recognition. You find out who you are or who somebody is. And some of this can be quite trivial, like, like a brother and sister. They, they look at their hair and say, gee, you look a lot like me. Uh, you could be my sister. But on a profounder level, you find it out by, by means of character quality and things like that. And for Aristotle, the best tragedies mean that the reversal of fortune is the result of the recognition. That is, you, you understand who you are or who somebody is, and this changes the nature of your, your circumstances. So the, the Oedipus is, is Aristotle's example of a perfect play, but you also see this, this the thing, the shock of recognition, the importance of, of, uh, of understanding who somebody is. There's a, there's, a, there's a famous movie where, I guess, I guess it's a, uh, a Thin Man movie, where Jimmy Stewart plays this typical Jimmy Stewart character, he's a very nice guy. And then all of a sudden at the end, yes, I did it. I killed him. I'm glad I killed him. Said, what? This is Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart's not allowed to kill anybody. <laughs> no, the all-American nice guy. It's it's uh, 
Uh, Hitchcock loved to use people like Jimmy Stewart because you didn't have to prepare their characters because you knew when Jimmy Stewart walks on, you know he's a very nice person and you're going to like him. And even if he does something wrong, you're, you're going to forgive him. But although late in life, he did some pretty gritty westerns because he wanted to break out of the mold. But anyway, that recognition, which is at the heart of Greek tragedy, is also at the heart of the detective story. So are you postulating because we've had it since Greek times that we've always had detective fiction? Not really. We've had the elements. Solving mysteries is a universal desire. You know, Aristotle, to quote him again, says, all men by nature uh, wish to know, or strive to know. Now, I sometimes think that only the Greeks wanted to find out the truth, and that that just doesn't apply to, <laughs> to certainly not to modern Americans. But... Um, we, the fictional genre, however, has a specific origin and a history. It comes out at a, at a specific time. There are, you know, there are dramas, that sh there are mysteries in Shakespeare, there are, and, and uh, Jacobean drama, but it's not the same. The evolution of the detective novel is, is, uh, is very limited in time. It's in the 19th century, the middle of the 19th century, before the war between the states, and pretty much... You know, literary historians have to agree that despite all the predecessors and everything else, one man gets the credit. And he's one of the most brilliant American writers, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. He's the one of the first great uh, Southern writers. Now, Dr. Fleming, I just for our listeners, for the benefit, if they were also like me, brainwashed by Yankees growing up, uh, and we're told everything Southern is trash, um, I didn't learn until I started attending the Abbeville Institute summer conferences that Edgar Allan Poe was a Southern writer. Why is that not a stretch? Well, uh, the first of all, his parents were both Southern. He was his his ambiance was uh, Maryland and uh, Virginia, and um, the the his his stories often have a very Southern flavor. Things like the Goldbug set on uh, on uh, two islands, right uh, right off Charleston Harbor in South Carolina. His parents, in fact, what they got, they, they, they even, they played uh, the Dock Street Theater in Charleston, which is sort of interesting. But uh, Poe was, quite apart from his antecedents and uh, circumstances of his life, he was a dedicated Southern regionalist. And if you read his critical writings, uh, which are, uh, most of which are collected in volume two in the Library of America, a uh, set of Poe, um, he says there's no reason we should read this third-rate Yankee literature. There's no such thing as American literature. They have theirs. We have ours. If we're going to read alien literature, we're much better off reading English and French and German because there we're reading great literature, whereas this Yankee stuff is garbage. You can just imagine how the New York and Boston literary establishment uh, took this. And so they invented the myth that Poe was a sick, mentally diseased person, an alcoholic, who uh, drank himself to death. Now, he did probably, uh, in the last six months of his life, after his child and wife had both died of tuberculosis, he probably took to the bottle. And he was one of those uh, cheap dates. He was uh, basically, he would be drunk on two drinks. And so, but the, but the notion that he was a bizarre character you know, and, uh, and because they, they alternate between saying there's nothing Southern about Poe and he's typically Southern because he's a degenerate. 
So they, it's a two it's a two track but a strategy which is uh, contradictory. But uh, okay. Well, let's let's look at these fundamental aspects that you're talking about, Doctor Fleming. Okay. Um, first, the most obvious thing is the brilliant analytical detective who reaches astonishing conclusions that are that no normal person would, not by uh, leaping intuitively, but by noting boring details and drawing necessary conclusions. This detect, Poe's detective, like so many later detectives, is not a policeman, but a private citizen. He's an aristocratic Frenchman who's, uh, whose family has lost all their money, but he has just enough means to uh, avoid having to go to work. Uh, this is uh, Monsieur Dupin. Right. Uh, uh, I guess it says C. I guess it must be Charles Auguste Dupin. Poe's narrator says he is, quote, astonished by the vast extent of the reading uh, that Dupin has done and by the vivid freshness of his imagination. Now, obviously, when Poe uh, is creating Dupin, he's looking in the mirror. I mean, he's thinking of himself as, as a man of enormous, and he faked some of his erudition. You can read all the things that Pope seems, claims to be reading. It, first of all, it would take uh, two lifetimes, but second of all, American libraries weren't that good. Now, uh, Dupin tells his friends that most men have a window into their bosom. In other words, that if you, if you study their character enough, closely enough, you can see what they are. So, like like his descendants, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. John Thorndike, Dupin begins with careful observation, very much like uh, uh, as Aristotle began all of his inquiries. His other great quality is the imaginative ability to trace consequences. He sort of could put things together in his mind. And we see this uh, in the murder in the Rue Morgan and in other stories in Dupin's ability to, to follow the course of his own friend's thoughts, very much as Holmes could say, well, I can see, Watson, you're taken to going to a gym and, uh, and uh, smoking such and such cigarettes. And, Marvelous, Holmes, how, how did you figure that out? And uh, we're in uh, Dupin, it's all very banal, trivial stuff, but it's one, one clue leads to another. And this becomes, you know, a lot of the great detectives, of course, uh, you, uh, of course, Agatha Christie's uh, Hercule Poirot is like a parody of Dupin. And, uh, but, but uh, of course, Holmes himself and uh, the, Dr. John Thorndike, all, all of these all of the British uh, detective heroes, American detective heroes, more like uh, somebody says to um, somebody says to uh, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. So what it is, you go out and insult a bunch of people, and whoever beats you up is probably a suspect. Well, that it's a, it's a somewhat cruder te technique. Well, what what other aspects um, should we be aware of, Doctor? Okay, in. Uh, Poe stories are told by a sympathetic and appreciative narrator. The narrator is an intelligent man, uh, but, he, but he's unoriginal. He lacks brilliancy. Uh, they, in the Sherlock Holmes stories, it's possible to, for example, overrate the stupidity of Watson. He's a doctor. He knows things. He's helpful. He's brave. 
And uh, but in some of the movie versions, uh, he's a fool. Watson is not a fool. He's just not brilliant. Uh, Dr. Thorndike's assistants, uh, who are usually um, other young doctors who are astonished by uh, what Thorndike does, uh, but in, or uh, maybe the most famous, the most successful assistant is Nero Wolfe's Archie Goodwin, who is sort of an all-American wise guy who is uh, astonished by how brilliant Wolfe is, and yet at the same time, Archie knows that there are a lot of things that only he can do that Nero Wolfe can't do. So this tension between a narrator who uh, you can sort of see the greatness of the detective through the narrator, but it's also imp important, and as, as, as years go by, uh, later on you, you, you find the narrators get more, uh, more intelligent and uh, more original. There's also the, the question I raised earlier of fair play. Um, there's... Uh, Pose Dupin does not pull any rabbits out of the hat, and uh, as what as uh, Holmes tells Watson and Thorndike tells his assistants over and over, they uh, they could come to this. They have all the information he does, but they refuse to follow a logical train of thought, and it's a, a, a clever reader. By could, for example, in the murder in the Rue Morgue, realize that. The murders are too savage for a, for a human being to have accomplished. By the end, when you realize it's not a human, it's not a human being. It's a it's an orangutan. Uh, it, you have the moment of aha, but you also have that great moment of of course I should have seen that. Um, a human being can't stuff a woman up a chimney. You know this is this is it would take supernatural strength and supernatural savagery. So we have so we have the the, the fair play, and also uh, the murder of the Rue Morgue is a locked room mystery, which becomes a, a, a cliche in English detective novels, whether uh, John Dixon Carr or uh, or Austin Freeman or Agatha Christie. Um, also, it's a murder. Several of his stories are. Uh, taken from the headlines. So, for example, the story of Marie Roger is actually, it's, it's transposed from a story in New York to, uh, to Paris, but it, it, is a, it, is a, it is an actual newspaper story that then uh, Poe tries to solve through fiction. Finally, um, also, Poe is a great writer of landscape and evocation. You know, he evokes feeling and mood and tone. And this is one of the things that pe many people really like in Sherlock Holmes. More than the mystery is the evocation of London in a, in a thick fog, and uh, it's, a, it's a very mysterious place. But, but many of the best uh, mystery writers are very good at mood and tone and depiction of, uh, of, of, of uh, interesting characters. And finally, I already said finally, but finally, finally, um, police procedural details. This is, uh, this is a very common thing. We have a lot of, there, there, there have been mystery novels written by former policemen. One, in fact, the head of Scotland Yard wrote a series of police procedurals back in the 20s and 30s. So this, this aspect is careful examination of the corpse, careful examination of the crime scene, you know, it, it, the interviewing of witnesses, and in Mar Marie Roger, 
for example, the uh, it's it's tedious detail, and you only realize after you get it about four or five times for, that, um, for example, they everybody in all the witnesses say, "Well, I heard this man shouting. I know it wasn't in French, so it must have been in English." Whereas the Italian says, "I think it was in German," and the other says, "I think it was in Russian." Well, of course, it, it's really actually. Uh, you know, something com- com- completely different. So um, the, 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 these kinds of ironies, but, but again, the, the use of uh, for forensic science and uh, police procedurals. Um, it's interesting, you know, what, what, what is the first piece of, uh, of literature in which fingerprinting is used? And this is, uh, this is, this is uh, actually Mark Twain. So far as I could tell, Puddinghead Wilson which is a very fine Mark Twain novel, which cannot be read today because it discusses uh, racial differences. But um, but Puddinghead Wilson is all about the, uh, uh, the, the 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 story. The plot turns on the fact that Puddinghead Wilson, the town eccentric, has been taking fingerprints of everybody since they're born, and so he can actually put things together. Interesting, the first great detective novel that turns on fingerprints is The Red Thumb Mark uh, by Austin Freeman. And there, the, um, it turns out they're, fel- they're forged. It's the, so, uh, and that's a particularly uh, fine effect. So anyway, so, so we've got a lot of the, if, if, you could, if you could just read The Mystery in the Rue Morgue and, uh, or uh, Marie Roger, you could, uh, from that, you could construct basic, the basic outlines of a classic mystery story. Well, and as you, you alluded to the locked door mystery, Dr. I mean, I was, I was reminded of the, that uh, board game Clue, yes. or as it's, it's called in the UK, Cluedo. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it, it even made its leap into, into popular board games as well. So it's clearly something that resonates. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, you know, we're not going to offer any spoilers because we're not going, uh, unless it's for the sixth sense, we're not going to offer any spoilers for, for Edgar Allan Poe, but what can we lure, what can we learn about the, the allure of detective fiction from Mr. Poe? Well, I think he's the sort of writer who really should have initiated this genre. He is in his poetry and short stories, like in The Raven or The the Goldbug or A Cask of Amontillado. He's a master of mystery and what and the, the, the sense of the eerie. He's the man who, after all, inspired H.P. Lovecraft and so many other writers of science fiction and horror. He's a dark romantic, and he becomes a model for the, for the French love Poe. Poe was never taken very seriously in America until writers like Baudelaire and Mapame uh, quote from him, they devote poems to him, and they understood that what he was doing is uh, beyond uh, purely rational uh, construction of literature. But there's another side of Poe. Poe was intensely rationalistic. He's very much not a romantic. Like He's very much in, in the 18th century. He has a strong interest in, uh, in science. Without spoiling his eeriness and spookiness with so, too much scientific gadgetry, he nonetheless thought that you could undertake a rational investigation of what would seem to be irrational, and this would lead you to the truth. 
Hence his the, the dissection of the narrator's sequence of thought in Murders in the Rue Morgue. So following the train of thought of, uh, of, uh, of his friend, going from clue to clue uh, that way, is an exact parallel to following the clues as to who killed the ladies in the Rue Morgue. And so uh, this, this intensely rationalistic Poe, and by the way, when you read Poe's uh, literary criticism or his, uh, his, 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 his really savage on these, these horrible women writers who wrote three volume novels in the 19th century or, uh, and his political views, his, he, he, he make, he ridicules the idea of the social contract and a state of nature. I mean, he's, he's way ahead of uh, most political thinkers in America, not just then, uh, but even today. So, <clears throat> And in, the, in these aspects, there's a, I think Poe is a, well, he's a deeper writer than, than uh, Conan Doyle, uh, who is too fond of uh, material evidence and more, acts more like a forensic specialist. Um, Poe is interested in the human element and the human character, and this he, he anticipates uh, my favorite uh, uh, Freeman's Dr. Dr. Thorndike. What Poe correctly understood is that moral evidence, the evidence of character, is more important than mere forensic physical evidence. And this is an important uh, important aspect, I think, of the best mystery writing. And by the best, I mean the Frenchman Georges Simenon, uh, Josephine Tay, and uh, there's a very fine uh, English woman uh, who lived in Florence, and all her uh, stories are set in Florence, named Magdalene Nab. And in all of these cases, it's the it's the, the the moral question, by which I don't mean simply the question of right and wrong, but the question of character and how character reveals itself in action and in behavior. Well, and I'm I'm thinking too, Dr. Fleming, when you allude to the the surface observations of someone like Holmes, I do find that if I've gone back to read a story, that if I'm out uh, a few hours later, I and I'm I'm looking at people, I may be looking down at their shoes or at their bags, and uh, trying to deduce out what Holmes would do. I, I do think it's a fun exercise, and I think it's something that um, that reading. I, I'm not. I'm not advocating, and I don't think this is what you're advocating for detective stories as a way to train your brain. But I do think it's a fun way to exercise your brain. Yeah, and it exercises your brain in such a way that you become uh, more attentive to the world around you. Uh, uh, you know, Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher, said most men live as if they're asleep, because what he meant by that is asleep. We don't have sensory information. And if you just dream through life and you don't know, you never notice so-and-so is wearing the wrong tie with the wrong shirt, does that mean he's colorblind? Does that mean he was brought up on the wrong side of the tracks? Does that mean, you know, it's like the, the rather silly scene in uh, the James Bond movie where uh, Robert Shaw orders uh, red wine with fish. And by the way, if you ever travel in the Balkans, you'll find yourself drinking red wine with fish because the white wine is undrinkable in some parts of Montenegro, for example. But, uh, but well, in the in the Balkans, you just eat whatever they give you, right, Doctor? Let me know. Yes. Good, so. Right, and otherwise, otherwise, you may find yourself not just washing dishes, but you might be falling <laughs> down a mountainside. But uh, but 
Yeah, and and but it also not just watching you know a hundred different varieties of cigar ash as uh, as Holmes uh, claims. He's the he's the master of such things. Um, again, interesting. Austin Freeman is a, didn't just go to medical school like Conan Doyle. He became as a practicing physician who wrote articles in medical journal about forensic pathology. His details are a good deal better than than uh, than Conan Doyle. But uh, and as so everyone knows, we'll talk. We'll we'll talk about doctor. I mean, we could do a, a show on uh, on the the medical element, the forensic element in in uh, in this kind of fiction. But uh, Holmes is based on a, a, a medical lecturer in uh, Edinburgh, and in fact, when when Robert Louis Stevenson f- read the first read a study in Scarlet. He was in Polynesia, but he writes a letter to Conan Doyle. He said, I believe this is our old teacher, isn't it? That is this medical lecture. Stevenson thought immediately, you know, what it was. So, um, but it also, apart from the forensic stuff, a good good detective writer begins to show you the ticks and, and quirks of human character. And you begin noticing how people behave when people are nervous. It's... You know, it used to be we believed that uh, that uh, you could look at a man's face and, and read his character. We 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 believe, we're not supposed to believe that now. Unfortunately, it's true. Balzac famously wrote that uh, after forty, everyone is responsible for his own face. Although I once saw that uh, uh, somebody cited that as said by. Uh, the uh, Lincoln's uh, Link, uh, Lincoln's cabinet member Stanton. Stanton was clearly had read Balzac, but uh, Balzac again, a very one of the most acute observers of human life who's ever written, and uh, he understands that faces are uh, a key to character, face, behavior, dress, all manners, all of these things uh, are a key to what's going on on the inside, and um, and you're right. Reading detective novels, one of the things you could take away is that it is um, uh, is this ability to to uh, to trace the effective character is there anything as we finish up today's episode dr fleming that you'd like to cover that we haven't covered either about the genre specific uh, genre in general or um, mr poe specifically I'd like to close with one one thought, and we'll talk about this uh, much more in other shows, but that is it, the uh, mystery fiction, detective fiction, between, say, the writings of Poe and then Catherine Ann Green, who wrote before Conan Doyle, and down to the 1930s, this was the age of doubt, the age of rationalism, the age of atheism, but also, and similarly, it's an age where people were looking for alternatives to religion. They were science. And, and we see that's a strong element in uh, detective fiction. Spiritualism. Conan Doyle was a spiritualist. Conan Doyle believed he took pictures of fairies and, and elves dancing in the woods. Whether he deliberately forged them or or his developer was forging them, I don't know. But I mean, he was a, <laughs> quite an eccentric. But and you know, art. You know, we get all art for art's sake. All the Wagner, the Wagnerian mentality that the artist is the the worship of the hero in general. So all of these things are taking place. The world is unsettled. Everybody, once upon a time, would could quote the end of Matthew Arnold's 
uh, uh, Dover Beach. Ah, love, let us be true to one another. For the world which lies before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy nor love nor certitude of peace nor help for pain. That is the world, that is the Victorian age. All of this superficial moral certainty of the Victorians, their robustness underneath is doubt and fear. And in an age of doubt and fear, you look for truth. And the detective is, the, is that seeker of truth, just like Oedipus. And I believe it's because it's in an age of doubt that the detective emerges as a hero. But that's something we can talk much more about. Well, we're looking forward to more. I'm sure our listener, I know I am, I'm sure our listeners will be as well for more in this uh, general series and then in our sub-series for both detective fiction and for tragedy. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time as always, Dr. Fleming. Good. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.